chapter 35 tonight, and Lord willing, time willing, we'll do chapter 36 next week, and then we are done with our study through the book of Chronicles. Finishing up our study tonight on Josiah, as Pastor Rich started teaching on Josiah last week. Good king, a great king, as a matter of fact. And what a blessing that he was. If you look back in chapter 34, verse 2, he did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of his father David. He did not turn aside to the right or to the left. That's a pretty good recommendation as a king there. And what a blessing that he is. So tonight he's going to be doing the Passover, and we're going to talk about that. Let's pray here before we get started. Lord, bless the time. Bless the word. Help us to learn and grow, and not just grow in knowledge, but to take this practically to go out and represent you to a world that needs you and all we do and say. Lord, teach us, equip us tonight through the Spirit to then go out to have the tools to represent you. Thank you and praise you for the time of food and fellowship and worship tonight. And bless, Lord, everything going on in the back, all that going on in the back, all for you in your name. Amen. Now, we're going to be talking about the Passover tonight, and if you've been with our study here, you may think, well, we just did the Passover with Hezekiah a couple chapters ago, and you're absolutely right. The problem was it was only a couple chapters ago, but in the chronology here of Chronicles, it was at the minimum 70-plus years ago. So for them to do the Passover, this is a big deal. Now, for us... Just a few weeks ago, we studied it. But for them, this is a big deal to do the Passover. That generation that would have done it under Hezekiah is probably not living anymore. Manasseh, the king before Josiah, reigned for 55 years. And it was an awful reign, awful evil reign. Josiah does not do the Passover until his 18th year. So if you do quick math, that means a minimum of 73 years have passed. 73 years have passed since the last Passover. That's the minimum. It could have been even a lot longer than that, depending on when Hezekiah did it. So our key verses for tonight, key verses are found in verses 18 and 19. There had been no Passover, this is chapter 35, there had been no Passover kept in Israel like that since the days of Samuel the prophet. And none of the kings of Israel had kept such a Passover as Josiah kept with the priests and the Levites, all Judah and Israel who were present and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. In the 18th year of the reign of Josiah, this Passover was kept. This Passover was the greatest Passover that's happened in hundreds of years. Now what makes this Passover so amazing? Well, first off, you're going to find out tonight this Passover was organized. If you remember Hezekiah's Passover from a few chapters ago, well, they were supposed to do it on the 14th of the first month. They couldn't get it done in time, so they had to do it on the 14th of the second month. It was organized, but it wasn't really organized. The amount of people coming to this is almost doubled, it seems like, than the one that went to Hezekiah. If you catch there in verse 18, it says, All Judah and Israel who were present. This is a beautiful ending to Josiah's reign. And it's really sad how Josiah's life ends, and it's really sad what happens in chapter 36. But there's this brief moment where it all comes together. God gets the glory. Now, when you are studying out the Passover, remember the Passover is always a picture of Jesus. Just keep that in the back of your mind. Anytime you read about the Passover, put Jesus in the midst of it. In fact, the New Testament says, comes right out and says, Jesus is our Passover. Now, if you were with us this spring, we did a small group study on the Passover, and we actually ended up doing a Seder meal out here at church as a small group. If you were part of that, you know that every element represents Christ. Remember, when you read the Old Testament and you read all Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and all those weird rules and laws and sacrifices, put Jesus in the middle of it. When you put Jesus in the middle of it, he's the puzzle piece that brings it all together. 
So the Passover is really a picture of Christ, and remember that. It's been at least 70 plus years since they have done one, and this is a picture of the nation getting itself back in order. Remember, when we talk about the walls, the walls always represent the nation getting itself back in order spiritually. The Passover is the ultimate example of the nation saying we're going to serve God and we're going to serve God appropriately. And this was what we would consider a successful Passover because God gets the glory and that's all that matters. What look happens here? Let's see what happens. Verse 1, chapter 35. Now Josiah kept a Passover to the Lord in Jerusalem, and they slaughtered the Passover lambs on the 14th day of the first month. So they did it orderly, right when they were supposed to, verse 2. And he set the priests in their duties and encouraged them for the service of the house of the Lord. This is a lot of work. A lot of work. When it says, he set the priests in their duties and encouraged them for the service of the house of the Lord. Cannot underestimate the amount of work that went into doing a Passover, the amount of lambs that were going to be sacrificed, the amount of everything that had to be done. Remember once again when Hezekiah tried doing it a few chapters ago, there was so much work to get it organized, they couldn't do it in time. They had to move it back to the second month. This would be the busiest of all times for a priest. So what does Josiah do in verse 2? He encourages them, encourages them. I shared with you that I learned at a pastor's conference last year, and it changed the way I do a lot of stuff out here at church. The pastor very simply said, are you equipping the body or are you whipping the body? What are you doing? Equipping or whipping? See, when you whip the body, you can get them in shape. But the problem is it doesn't work. Encouragement always works more. Equipping works better than whipping. It always does. I had a pastor say this one time. I never forgot it. They said the difference between a kick in the pants... And a pat on the back is only about 18 inches. But it's worlds apart in effectiveness. And that is the truth. I've shared with you before, my kids are still small enough, I can get them to do whatever I want, whenever I want. Because I can walk around and just intimidate them until they will be obedient. But you know what? I don't have their heart. I have their fear. So I'm very effective. And I can get it done. But what I want to do is I want to raise them to just obey out of the heart. It's the same thing with the Lord. He could come down in my life right now and out of fear get me to be pure and holy and good and what have you. But that's not what he wants. He wants me in my own free will to choose to love him and serve him. He wants me to get up in the morning and say, I choose to start my day off with you, Lord. I choose to end my day with you. I choose to love my wife as Christ loved the church. I choose to raise my kids in a godly way. I choose to stop and think spiritually about every action I take throughout the day. Or he could follow me around and scare me into doing that. No. He wants to equip me. That's part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's not to whip me, but to equip me. And the same thing as a pastor. I want to equip you. I want to give you the tools to go deeper in your walk with the Lord. I want to pat you on the back. Now, does that mean that there's not a time for rebuke? Sometimes you got to rebuke. And sometimes you do got to kick him in the pants. You do. There's a time for that as well. But generally speaking, it's encouragement. So a huge Passover coming. What's the king do in verse 2? Guys, I encourage you. I encourage you. This is going to be a lot of work, guys. But we can do this. I heard a teaching recently, and I love it. They said, in your life, you should always have a Paul, a Timothy, and a Barnabas. Now, what that means is this. You should always have a Paul, someone who is discipling you, someone who's helping you go deeper in the Lord. You should always have a Timothy, someone you're discipling, 
Someone you're helping go deeper in the Lord. Now, we've talked about that for years out here. And in a perfect scenario, you are always discipling someone, and someone is always discipling you to go deeper. But this person added a third. He goes, you should always have a Barnabas. If you remember, Barnabas' name means son of encouragement. That you always have that Barnabas in your life that is spiritually encouraging you. Listen, if you've ever been going through a difficult time, you know how much it means to get that text, that email, that phone call, that card, that whatever that just says, hey, keep fighting the good fight. This is exactly what Josiah is doing. We can learn a lot from his leadership. He doesn't get up there and start yelling at them saying, you have no idea what we're up against here, guys. No, he says, hey, let's encourage you. This is good. To God be the glory. Verse 3. He said to the Levites who taught all Israel, who were holy to the Lord, put the holy ark in the house, which Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, built. And it shall no longer be a burden on your shoulders. Now serve the Lord your God and his people Israel. If you don't catch what he's saying there in verse 3, he says, guys, put the ark back where it was. What can we infer from that? The ark was not where it was supposed to be. We know from the reign before with Manasseh, Manasseh did not have a good reign. Manasseh ended well, amen, but it was not a good reign. Verse 4, prepare yourselves according to your father's houses, according to your divisions, following the written instructions of David, king of Israel, and written instructions of Solomon the son. Guys, get ready. You know the rules. Let's follow the rules. Verse 5. Stand in the holy place according to the divisions of the Father's house of your brethren, the lay people, and according to the divisions of the Father's house of the Levites. Go to the place where you're supposed to be. Verse 6. Slaughter the Passover offering. Then go ahead and do it. This, This is how ministry is supposed to work. You want to be effective for the Lord? You want the ministry you serve in to be effective for the Lord? First thing you do, verse 3, get the ark where it's supposed to be. The ark represents God's presence. So you put him first. Remember, it's never about promoting you. It's never about promoting a ministry. And it's never about promoting a church. It's about promoting Jesus Christ. That's all that matters. So get the ark where it's supposed to be. Once the ark is where it's supposed to be, that's your primary thing. Jesus is number one. Number two then, verse four, get yourself prepared. Are you ready to serve? Are you ready to minister? Are you ready to go deeper? Prepare yourself for this. And then what happens next? Verse 5, stand. Now that sounds like the easiest one, doesn't it? That's actually the hardest one. You know how hard it is to stand when everybody's shooting at you? You know how hard it is to stand when everybody's against you? It's hard to stand for truth when you're the only one at work who is a believer and no one else is. It is hard to stand for truth when in your marriage, in your house, no one else is on fire for the Lord like you are. It's hard to stand for truth when no one thinks what you're saying is right. It is hard to do. Lastly, verse 6, now you slaughter. Don't do that literally. It's talking about Jesus. The preeminence is Christ and his death on the cross. Listen, we're not here to preach that God wants you to be happy. We're not here to preach that God just wants you to have a good day. We're here to preach that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. The lamb had to be slaughtered because we have sin. You have sin. I have sin. And that's what we have to preach. So how does ministry work? Get the ark in the right spot, verse 3. That means put God where you're supposed to be. Next, get yourself prepared spiritually, verse 5. Stand, verse 6. Represent Jesus. And guess what? It all comes together. That's how you have a successful Passover. But more importantly, that's how you have a successful ministry. And that's what we can learn here from Josiah. Any quick questions, comments about this before we go on? Ryan. Yeah, verse 3 mentions the Ark of the Covenant. And as far as I can tell, that's the uh, last sort of uh, Old Testament reference to the Ark that I can find. Yeah. Because this is only about 50 or so years before Babylon comes in and destroys everything. And that's sort of in the point of history where the Ark of the Covenant is supposed to be missing. 
It is, and you and I have talked about this before. We, we believe that could be the last reference. If you jump ahead to chapter 36, uh, verse 7, it says, Nebuchadnezzar also carried off some of the articles from the house of the Lord to Babylon and put them in his temple at Babylon. It does not say ark specifically there. We don't know for sure. And we know in the book of Daniel that it mentions when Belshazzar does his feast, he says, bring out, bring out some of the things of the temple. Does that include the ark? We don't know. But it looks like the ark kind of does go um, disappear here for a little bit. So, And that's one of the key elements if you're going to rebuild the temple, which that's what the Jews want to do in Israel is rebuild the temple. You've got to have the ark. That's the central piece of that. Anybody else have anything here before we go on? Okay. So we got ministry in order. Now what do we do? Verse 7, Josiah gave the lay people lambs and young goats from the flock for all for Passover offerings for all who were present to the number of 30,000 as well as 3,000 cattle. These were from the king's possessions. Keep your hand right there. Just jump back, if you will, please, to chapter 30. Chapter 30, verse 24. If you look here in chapter 24, excuse me, chapter 30, verse 24, compare what Hezekiah did when he did his Passover, verse 24. Hezekiah, king of Judah, gave to the assembly a thousand bulls and seven thousand sheep. So a thousand bulls, seven thousand sheep, and the leaders gave the assembly a thousand bulls, and what else then? Ten thousand sheep. Now compare that to what we just read here in verse 7. What did Josiah give? Josiah gave the lay people lambs and young goats from the flock for all Passover offerings for all who were present to the number of 30,000 as well as 3,000 cattle. This shows how much bigger this Passover was. This was huge. Now, there's a spiritual point right here. Number one, Josiah is willing to give up of his own. He's willing to give up of his own. Right here, we learn in verse 7, more of the nature of Josiah. The idea of personal giving. Personal giving. And yes, there's the element of personal giving when it comes to tithes and offerings. That's true. But this is also the personal giving of your possessions, of your time, of your energy, of your resources. See, this is what happens. Mom and dad, if you want your kids to be servants, they'll be servants if you're servants. You know, mom and dad, do you want your kids to go out and tell people about Jesus? They'll do it if you tell people about Jesus. That's the truth. If you lead a ministry and you want the people underneath your ministry to be on time and to be effective and to be on fire, set the example. If you want the people in your ministry to go out and tell people about Jesus, you go out and tell people about Jesus. There's a trickle-down effect to this. And you see that happening here. Look at verse 8. After Josiah gave all that, verse 8, and his leaders gave willingly to the people, to the priests. See, the leaders stop and say, hey, look what the king's doing. He's given up his own energy and resources. Guess what? We're going to give our, of our own resources. Because the leader set the example. Now, this is such an important point. I want to repeat it. Especially to the dads, to the husbands. As the leader of your house, how, what do you want your house to look like? Set that example. Ministry leaders at church, what do you want that ministry to look like? Set the example. And it doesn't even stop there. It goes to where you work, where you live, where you go to school. You're setting an example of what you want the other people around you to look like. So you have a disagreement at school, you have a disagreement at work. How are you going to handle it? Do you want peace and calm? Set the tone of peace and calm. Do you want yelling and screaming? Well, then set the tone of yelling and screaming. We set the tone. People will follow that there. So Josiah does that. And what happens here? Verse 10, the service was prepared. The priests stood in their places and the Levites in their divisions according to the king's command. This was so organized. 
I mean, this, this was amazingly organized. In fact, this is one of the few times in the Bible I've ever seen something organized. Do you realize how unorganized the Bible is? And if you don't believe me, when they fed the 5,000, how did they feed the 5,000? Right? The boy with the loaves and the fishes? They didn't plan ahead for that. They just kind of won't wind it by the Holy Spirit right there. That's exactly what they did. Jesus wanted to have a Passover. What did he do? He sent out a couple of disciples and said, hey, just go to some guy and say, the master wants to use that house for a Passover. Jesus wanted to come in on a donkey for Palm Sunday. What did he do? He just sent out a couple of disciples and said, hey, when you find a donkey, untie it and just say, the master needs it. Do you realize Jesus is the king of winging it? He is. I've been out at this church for 23 years. I've been the pastor out here. I'm in my 17th year of being the pastor. So Rich and I are the two pastors. And don't think I'm trying to be egotistical here. We are the most unorganized people you have ever seen. Completely. And every now and then we have a little time where we get together and it's like, gosh, we need to do a better job of being organized. Because you've got Tony and Nancy behind the scenes that are just so organized. And so then Richard always stops and says this. He goes, Jamie, I haven't been organized a day in my life, and God just keeps taking care of it. Now, if you know Richard, that's Richard. He's the king of winging it. Holy Spirit just sometimes takes care of it. But right here at this moment, this is organized. This is good. I have a great quote that I like to share about this, because I struggle with this sometimes. At a conference, this guy made this quote, and I wrote it down, because I think it just reminds me so much of the body of Christ. This is from Sandy Adams, great pastor there. He says, the church is a living, breathing organism. We are the body of Christ. We are not called to be a highly efficient institution. What he's basically saying is the body of Christ has a lot of warts. We have a lot of parts that are maybe not working 100%. There's a lot of stuff that goes on in the body of Christ where we have to stop and realize it's not going to all come together the way we want it to sometimes. And isn't God bigger than that? And that's the point I'm trying to make. Yes, this right here, verse 10, was highly efficient and organized. And for you type A personalities out there, you're marking that verse saying amen. For the rest of us, there's hope. There's hope that God, no matter what spot we're in in life, he says, I can still work with this. And that's not the beautiful picture of the church. I think sometimes as a church, we try so hard to make it look like we have it all figured out. And the truth of the matter is we don't know what we're doing. We're just trying to represent Jesus Christ. And when you keep it that simple, oh, man, it's wonderful. Let's just represent Christ to the dying world, point people towards Jesus, and you know what? That's what matters. So what happens here? They do the Passover, verse 11, and I want you to follow what happens. So we have verse 11. We have the sacrifice. Remember, the Passover represents Jesus. So when in verse 11 they slaughter the Passover offerings, that's Jesus. So you have the death of Jesus in verse 11. The death of Jesus in verse 11. Now, what happens after the death of Jesus? Everybody partakes of it. And that's exactly what happens here. So, verse 13, they roast the Passover offering. They divide it among the people. That's what you're supposed to do. Jesus is slaughtered. He dies on the cross for our sins, verse 11. Now, in verse 13, what do we do? We tell people about Christ. Verse 14, we tell everybody about Christ. We tell the lay people about Christ. The priests know about Christ. The Levites know people about Christ. And now that everybody knows about Christ in the Passover, guess what we do? Verse 15, we worship. And the singers, the sons of Asaph, were in their places according to the command of David. Asaph, Heman, and Jethunah, the king's seer. Now we worship. 
Do you realize how simple Christianity is? Jesus died, rose again, and now I just go tell people about that. And when they get saved, hey, let's just worship together. Then let's go repeat the same process again. Let's not complicate something that God is trying to keep simple. He died, rose again. I want to tell you about it. And then once you get saved, I want to worship with you. And isn't that what we try to do at church? We want to proclaim the death of Christ. We want to equip you. And what do we want to do? We want to give you a time of worship. But please note the second part of verse 15. Also the gatekeepers were at each gate. They did not have to leave their position because their brethren, the Levites, prepared portions for them. If you remember when we talked about the gatekeepers, this goes way back in our study in Chronicles. The Jews had armed security at the gates. Now, the armed security was there for numerous reasons. If you have a, I should have brought a picture of the temple here to show you. They had different courts. Court of the Gentiles, the court of the women, etc. Where certain groups of people were allowed to go and certain people weren't allowed to go. So what happens is, if you were not allowed to go, let's say you were not Jewish, you were unclean, and you tried to get into the temple, there was security to stop you at those gates to keep you from doing that. So that was the importance of that, to keep the temple clean and pure. So these gatekeepers, boy, the priests are working overtime. Guess what security is doing right now? They're working overtime. You can't pull security off the gates and say, hey, guys, come eat the Passover. So what do we do in verse 15? You take the Passover to them. Now, what's that a picture of? Well, I look at a practical example as this. When we do communion out here at church, we're always very blessed that there's so many people in the back taking care of the kids, the nursery, whatever, that once we're done taking communion here in the sanctuary, we have a couple guys go to the back, gather up everybody that serves, and takes communion to them so they can still partake of communion. Right now, we're sitting here in the sanctuary. We're sitting here in the sanctuary, and you hear me use this example all the time. The air conditioning's on, the lights are on, the sound system's working, and there's not a bunch of little crazy kids running all over the place. Why? Because verse 15, there's a whole lot of gatekeepers that you don't know about. There's a gatekeeper that paid the electric bill this month. There's a gatekeeper that is watching your sweet little child back in the nursery right now. And there's literally a gate. I <laughs> just want to let you know that. This is literal gates. There's gatekeepers that make sure the sound works. There's gatekeepers that make sure everything flows. And we may not notice those people. But there's something in the Bible called the gift of helps. And the gift of helps is exactly what it is. It's just somebody who wants to help. And there may not be people that are called to teach. There may not be people that are called to VBS. There may not be people that are called to the nursing home or called to Dearborn or called to garage sale giveaway or Johnny and friends. They may not be called to those things. But they may just have a gift of helps. And for a couple weeks ago, we put together a bunch of picnic tables on a Saturday morning. There's a lot of guys that just showed up, and there were some people that showed up just to paint and put them together. When we do roofing projects, people just show up to do it. Gift of helps. They're willing to do it, and what a blessing that is. So I just want to encourage you, don't forget about the gatekeepers. And for those that are gatekeepers and just happens to be this is not your evening to serve, I really do appreciate that. I really do. And I just, Lord brought this to mind real quick because Tony told me, hey, the next time you teach a Wednesday... Remind the church that she needs a lot of extra help on Wednesdays. See? Spirit just brought that right in. Prayerfully consider getting involved on Wednesdays. Prayerfully consider getting involved on Wednesdays. So what do we have here? The service goes well, verses 16 and 17. And what did we start with, verses 18 and 19? The best Passover that's happened since Samuel. What can we learn about the Passover? It's a picture of Jesus. Don't ever forget that. Picture of Jesus. We talked about him being slaughtered. Then we share him with everybody, and then we rejoice. 
picture of salvation going out. We also see Josiah encouraging. Hey, guys, this is going to be a big deal. Let's encourage. And we talked about the importance of encouraging people. Personal giving of Josiah that trickles down to everybody else. Says, hey, if the king's doing it, I want to do it. Organized, ready. But also we're a bunch of human beings that have sin nature. And we just want to love Jesus too. That ends that part. Now we have a quick little PS here, verses 20 through 27, of how Josiah's life ends. We're going to do that real quick. Anybody have any quick questions, comments about Passover or anything? Yeah, Becca. Right. This would be the Passover where everybody gets together. Yep. They brought everybody to the temple to do that. Taking a lot of time. They, they talk about how uh, historians talk about during the time of Jesus that when everybody would come to Jerusalem to do the Passover, that the actual cricks and rivers around Jerusalem would start being red because there's so much blood from animals. And, and I, I remember one time, and please don't quote me on this, I thought I read one time they were talking like half a million lambs at the time of Jesus would be sacrificed. Because what Becker brought up a good point, what you see in Exodus is you see the Passover happening in someone's house. But by this time, it's morphed into it happens at the temple, and everybody comes to Jerusalem. And by the time here of Jesus, if you were a good Jew, uh, there's three feasts that you would come to Jerusalem, and one of them was for the Passover here. And so at this time, it would just be the town would be huge. And that's why when Christ was crucified during Passover, it's just this huge group of people would have been at Jerusalem. The town would have been bustling, absolutely bustling. Anybody else have any quick questions before we move on? Okay. All righty, you've been through me with Chronicles enough. You know what happens. We have kings that start out good and then bad. We've had kings that start out bad and then good. We've had kings that do this. We have kings that do that. Josiah is a great king, a great king. I think Richard mentioned last week that uh, he read someplace that maybe one of the top two best kings that uh, Israel ever had, or excuse me, Judah ever had. His ending should not negate what happened in his life. He kind of makes a bad decision here at the end. I think we can all relate to this. Verse 20, after all this, when Josiah had prepared the temple, Necho, king of Egypt, came up to fight against Carchemish by the Euphrates, and Josiah went out against him. Now, just real quick here. If you don't know world history, what's going on at this time is that the Assyrians were the world power. They're starting to lose that. There's this other emerging power that you may know of called Babylon. So Babylon and Assyria are starting to come together. Well, what happens, the Assyrians need help, so they call on Egypt to help them. Now, if you have a map, and you can think of this in your mind, you have Babylon here, Assyria here, Israel here, Egypt down here. So for Egypt to come up and help Assyria, they kind of got to march, not necessarily through Israel, but near Israel. So Egypt is coming up to take on Babylon, and Josiah says, I'm going to fight you, verse 21. But Necho, he sent messengers to him saying, What have I have to do with you, king of Judah? I have not come against you this day, but against the house with which I have war. For God commanded me to make haste, refrain from meddling with God who is with me, lest he destroy you. Now what would you do with that information? You go to work tomorrow, and the most non-believing of all non-believers comes up to you and says, God told me to tell you. Would you even listen to that? Would you even accept that? Here's Josiah, one of the best kings Judah ever had, coming off a spiritual high. All of a sudden, he runs into this heathen from Egypt, and he says, hey, in verse 21, God told me, don't mess with me. I'm doing what God has asked me to do. 
Verse 22, Nevertheless, Josiah would not turn his face from him, disguised himself that he might fight with him, and did not heed the words of Necho from the mouth of God. So he came to fight him in the valley of Megiddo. And the archer shot King Josiah, and the king said to his servants, Take me away, for I am severely wounded. His servants therefore took him out of his chariot, put him in the second chariot that he had, and they brought him to Jerusalem. So he died and was buried in the tombs of his father, and all Judea and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. That is a strange little passage right there. Because you can stop and you can make a case for all of this. Josiah, this guy said he was of the Lord. You should have listened to him. Well, why should I listen to someone who's not of the Lord? I mean, they could just be faking that. Well, Josiah, you should have realized that. Oh, no, Josiah, you made the right choice because why would God use this prayer? I mean, you can go all over with this. So let's just kind of break this down a little bit and talk about this. First off, did Josiah think he was right? Well, we can make a couple points here to make it look like that Josiah wasn't even sure of himself. Number one, there's no reference to Josiah praying. There's no reference to him seeking God on any of this. Most important point, though, is this, is verse 22. Nevertheless, Josiah would not turn from his face from him, but what did he do? He disguised himself. If you know you're in the will of the Lord, and you know you're where God wants you to be, why are you disguising yourself to go into battle? Well, why would God use the Egyptians? Remember the verse. God makes his enemies a footstool. God wanted to judge Israel. So who did he use to judge Israel? The northern tribes, you remember? He used Assyria. Well, then God wanted to judge Assyria. So who did he use to judge Assyria? Babylon. Then who did he use to judge Babylon? The Medes and the Persians. Who did he use to judge the Medes and the Persians? The Greeks. Who did he use to judge the Greeks? The Romans. God says, I'll, I'll take care of everybody. I'll judge them. So at this time, Josiah, I'm judging Assyria for what they did, and I'm using Babylon to do it, and so Egypt's coming up, I'm going to take care of all this, just stay out of the way, Josiah. How are you supposed to know that in life? How are you supposed to know? This is why it's so important to be in constant communication with the Lord. I'm going through the book of Mark with somebody out here at church, and I just read this morning in Mark about how Jesus got up early in the morning, and he spent every morning early with God the Father to know what the Lord wanted him to do. The more time you spend with God the Father, the more you know what he wants you to do. That's why it's so vital to spend time with him. And sometimes the Lord asks you to do something that sounds really funky, guys. It really does. But the Lord says the Holy Spirit's in it. I'll give you a perfect example. I was recently driving a couple of people someplace, and I got out of our regular area here where I have my regular Christian stations programmed in. So none of my stations were coming in. So I'm flipping through the stations, just trying to find something, you know, encouraging, uplifting, whatever. So I run across a teaching station, and there's somebody teaching. And I'm not going to tell you who it was, but there's a teacher, and I do not like this teacher. I do not like this teacher in any way whatsoever. So as soon as I heard this teacher's voice, I was getting ready to switch it. But I heard what the teacher was saying. And as soon as I flipped that station, the teacher starts teaching on a point that the two people I have in my car that I'm driving someplace, I know they need to hear. I know they need to hear. So I left the radio on. I just kept turning it up. It's a teacher I don't like. It's a teacher that I would probably not personally recommend anybody listening to. And it's a teacher that if you came up to me and said, what do you think of? I would say, let's go in the kitchen and talk privately. That's what I would say. (laughs) But at that moment and at that time, I listened And that teacher, for the five minutes we listened, it was biblical, it was the scriptures that needed to be said, and it was points that needed to be said. And the Lord used it at that moment. 
There's been times where I've had non-believers come up to me and say something that was so godly, you almost want to stop and say, is the Holy Spirit using you right now? And that is completely biblical. Go back and read some of the things that was said in the Gospels. There's a guy by the name of Caiaphas, who was an awful man in the New Testament that wanted Jesus crucified. And do you remember what Caiaphas said? His blood will be upon us. That's a pretty smart statement, Caiaphas. It really was. There's another guy in the book of Acts by the name of Gamil. That when they come to him and they say, what should we do with this early church? Gamil's advice was, let him go. If it's of God, you can't stop it. And if it's not of God, it will die out. That was godly advice from a non-believer. So I am not saying, go into work tomorrow and find the most heathen person you know and say, will you tell me what to do? I'm not saying that. (laughs) What I'm saying is, if the Lord can use a great fish to speak to Jonah, it can use a donkey to speak to Balaam, God can use a lot of different ways to get our attention. And at this time, God is using Necho, king of Egypt, to speak to Josiah. And I think Josiah knew maybe he shouldn't have, because once again in verse 22, why are you disguising yourself? Why are you disguising yourself? Because maybe you're not as confident as you think you should be. So Josiah's life ends right there. Verse 25, Jeremiah also lamented for Josiah. And to this day, all the singing men and the singing women speak of Josiah and their lamentations. They made a custom in Israel, and indeed they are written in laments. Now the rest of the acts of Josiah and his goodness, according to what was written in the law of the Lord, and his deeds from first to last, indeed they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. Let me make one quick little side point here, just make sure I'm clarifying something. When I say... Always be able to listen to what the Lord may be saying through different sources. That does not mean if someone comes up to you and gives you something that is unbiblical or untruthful or unchristlike, does not mean that's of the Lord. Please don't take it that way. I'm just saying the Lord can use those things to speak godly things sometimes. And let's just let the Holy Spirit lead. But in Second Chronicles 36, we finish up our study in Chronicles, and we see the end of the nation of Judah. We've already seen what happened to Israel. Now we see the end of the nation of Judah, and we see them going into captivity with Babylon, and that's what happens next week. And I hope you can make it with us to finish up our study in Chronicles and already start praying about where the Lord wants us to go next here in a couple weeks. It'll be kind of exciting to see what he has in store. Don't forget, next week, VBS. If you want to serve, spots back there. Talk to Liz. If there's stuff you can bring in, check out the list. If nothing else, grab a prayer calendar, please. And just keep VBS in prayer next week to be an outreach for the Lord. Any final questions, comments here? Ryan. Yeah, I think it was Napoleon that said that. And if you look at it, if you've ever seen a picture of the Valley of Megiddo, it is just kind of out of the blue. There's this beautiful flat space, you know, with these mountains and valleys beside it. And there's a lot that happens in Megiddo. Obviously, there's a lot that happens, especially when you get to the book of Revelation. That's where the Battle of Armageddon will start. So, anybody else have anything here before we close up? Hey, let's pray this into our lives. Lord, help us to encourage like you encourage, Lord. Lord, help us to be spirit-led like you want us to be. And Lord, help us to truly keep our eyes on the Passover lamb. And tell people about him and be led to get involved in people's lives because we care. But Lord, equip us to go deeper as a church, as individuals, as families. And we want to be the godly people you've called us to be. 
We ask for your blessing upon this church to be a light and a witness for you. Pray for VBS next week. Please go before that. And Lord, we never want to stop thanking you. The garage sale giveaway, the prayer chain, Johnny and Friends Church Camp, Baptism, Dearborn, you blessed all those things. Thank you. And Lord, not only bless this church, but Lord, all the other churches around here that would have a heart to just want to see people saved, just for you. We thank you, Lord. We lift this up in your name. Amen. You guys have a good week. God bless. And hopefully we'll see you next week to finish up Chronicles.